Well, hello and welcome to you uh, wherever you are in the world watching this. A particularly warm welcome to you if you're joining us here at Everyday Church Online for the first time. Uh, I hope you're able to take whatever opportunities are open to you to connect more deeply uh, with us here at Everyday Church. What we worship matters and how we worship matters. Uh, today you're joining us in the middle of a sermon series as we walk through the book of Exodus uh, together. Uh, and the Exodus is one of the foundational stories of the Christian faith. This precious book of the Bible tells us the story of Moses and the release of the Israelites from slavery out of Egypt and as they start their journey towards the promised land. And we're taking 19 weeks uh, together to explore this story together. And today is week 17. Crumbs, where, where has the year gone? I don't know. Uh, our theme today is the tabernacle. Uh, and the tabernacle was to be the tent of meeting, a place where the Israelites could gather to corporately worship God together as they journeyed through the desert. It was to be the focal point of their ceremonial worship together. Uh, our, passage, uh, our passages for this sermon are chapters 25 to 27, 36 to 38, and chapter 40. So a mere seven chapters of texts. Uh, I pasted that into a Word document and found it to be 4,700 words long. Guys, that's a lot. Uh, and reading them to you would leave me no time for anything else. But because these multiple chapters uh, give us repeated details about the tabernacle, they point us towards its significance for the Israelites and point towards God's priorities and purposes. And these are the themes that I'm hoping to explore with you today. And while I haven't got time to read all of these chapters to you, uh, it's important for us to have an idea about their contents. And these chapters detail for us God's instructions to Moses about how he was to build the tabernacle. And they read like instructions. God detailing the size and shape of the tabernacle and the objects that were to be placed in it. And if you were to read these chapters, you will note that there is a lot of repetition between them. But there's also a progression. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, look here at our first slide, uh, at Exodus 25 to 27. Now, I appreciate you won't be able to read uh, these words because they're in such a tiny font. But let me just highlight, and I've highlighted on the slide, the key, this key verb in these chapters, make. These are God's instructions to Moses as he details what he is to make. Next, see Exodus 36 and 38, where I've highlighted made. Here we run through the same list as chapters 25 to 27, but this time it's not just a list of instructions, but we're told that they actually made what God had told them to make. Lastly, have a look at this chapter, Exodus 40, where I've highlighted bring and place. Seven times in this chapter we read, Moses did as the Lord commanded. And so we see these three big chunks of Exodus that they describe the building of the tabernacle for us. We have make, made, place. In other words, instruction, production, construction. Here's what you are to make. And so the Israelites made it, and then they brought it all together into one place. The tabernacle and its objects were loaded with symbolism and meaning. 
Uh, some would major on the tabernacle being a, a tented palace for Israel's divine king. Others might emphasize its comparison with Eden, the garden paradise where the Bible starts its story. But whichever metaphor you're using, more than anything else, the tabernacle was all about God's presence. Because God wants to be, because God wants to be close to us. God tells the Israelites this in Exodus 25 verse 8 where he says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell amongst them. And likewise in Exodus 29 where he says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So after all of this preamble, let me show you an artist's impression of what the tabernacle could have looked like. Here you'll see its surrounding wall, which encloses a courtyard accessible through one door. Outside the tent in the courtyard, we find an altar and a basin. Inside the tent, we find a bunch of objects as well, and the holy place, and the most holy place. So the surrounding wall highlighted God's otherness from his people. That you couldn't just simply walk into God's presence. Sin separates God from his people. A narrative point here, uh, in between the tabernacle descriptions in Exodus 25 and Exodus 37, we have the story of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Now we've covered this in previous weeks, so you want some more detail about that, do look up those services. But, but it was a moment of pure idolatry from God's people. While Moses was up the mountain receiving the law from God, the Israelites made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. Amazing then that God's plans take into account Israel's sin and makes a way for them to find forgiveness and enjoy his presence once again. The surrounding wall highlights to God's people their need of salvation. There was only one way into the courtyard through the only door. There, there wasn't an option for the Israelites to create multiple ways to approach God's presence. If the Israelites wanted to get in, they had to go through the one way. Getting through the door, then they would have entered into this courtyard where they would have first encountered the altar of burnt offerings. This was a place of sacrifice and worship where prescribed offerings would have been bought, killed, burnt. This, is be, this would be the place where the sins of the people would symbolically be placed on the animals. And those animals then would be given to atone for the people's sin. This was a busy place. Behind the altar was the basin. This would have been used by the priests to wash and to clean themselves. This, this would have been really necessary after lots of sacrifices. But they also used it before priests would have entered into the tent itself. They would have used it to clean themselves from the dirt and pollution of the world before stepping closer to God's presence. Only after these steps so far, sacrifices and cleansing, could a priest enter into the holy place. Up until this point, any metal that has been used has been bronze. So the, pen, uh, the pegs securing the wall, the bronze basin, the bronze altar for burnt offerings. But as we move into the tent itself, into the holy place, we start to see silver and gold. 
And indeed, the closer you get into the divine presence in the most holy place, the more precious the metal. Entering into the holy place, you would have found three objects. Firstly, the lampstand, which provided light in the dark of the tent and, and represented the light of God's presence. And then there would have been the, the table on which was the bread of the presence. Now, it's called the bread of the presence because it was in the presence of God within the holy place. Uh, this bread was a regular offering and the 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, these loaves would have been constantly bathed in the light from the lampstand, representing God's blessing on his people. And the third object was the, in, uh, the altar of incense. This sweet-smelling perfume would have filled the tent and represented the people's prayers to God as a sweet fragrance. From here, then, you would enter into the most holy place. And in the most holy place was only one object, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this was the focal point of God's presence in the tabernacle, that the mercy seat situated on top of it where God's presence was said to dwell. And we're told that this Ark of the Covenant was eventually filled with three objects. Uh, there was a golden jar in there containing manna, this miraculous food provided from God. So this object displaying God's power to provide. Then there were the two stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were inscribed upon, which defined God's holiness as we relate to him, but also to one another. And then there was Aaron's staff that budded, uh, the story of which uh, you can read about in, ex uh, in Numbers uh, 16 and 17, and represented God's chosen priest. Now I recognise that this is a lot to take in, loads of symbolism and meaning. If nothing else, remember that the tabernacle allowed God's people to worship and marked God's presence with his people the tabernacle clarified and established God's holiness and the separation that comes from sin. The tabernacle meant that God could dwell with his people, but it didn't enable them to draw near. The, the tabernacle and its furniture was also a constant reminder of humanity's sinfulness and of its need for a saviour. But this is all that the tabernacle once meant and symbolised. 3,500 years later, we can see its true and deeper purpose. In January 2022, uh, I preached the opening sermon in our series through John's Gospel. Uh, we looked at the prologue at the start of John's Gospel, where we would have read in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. At where this verse says, he made his dwelling amongst us, it literally means he pitched his tent amongst us. He tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. Now he is to be the centre of our worship. God's perfect holiness personified. God living and breathing amongst us. The one through whom we can walk into the very heavenly presence of God with confidence and in full assurance.
I can think of no better way of presenting this to you than using the words of the writer to the letters of the Hebrews in the New Testament in Hebrews 9. And I really want to encourage you to, again, read through Hebrews at some point as we go through this series in Exodus. It is a cracking summer read. I have cut a few verses from this longer section just because of time, but let me read these through. So uh, Hebrews uh, 9 verse 1, and we'll run through to verse 14. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Man, I really wish he had. (laughs) Verse 6. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he had offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by human hands, that is to say is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Wow. In other words, the tabernacle was full of symbols that point us to Jesus. And let me show you how, step by step. Let me introduce, uh, hopefully, a helpful slide uh, for you as we go through. The wall still highlights to us the separation of God and people. And to illustrate this, I'd like just to bring a touch of nuance to a couple of phrases that you might have heard used from time to time. Have you ever heard someone use a phrase, this phrase, God loves you as you are? Now this is true-ish. Now each one of us is made in the image of God. And you haven't met anyone who God doesn't love. But it's our sin that keeps us separated from God. And this side of eternity, we should be grateful for a wall that doesn't protect God from being tainted from our sin, No, rather protects us from his wrath. We need to be clear. God hates the sin inside of you. That's killing and corrupting you. Have you ever heard someone use the phrase, there is no sacred secular divide? Again, this is true-ish. This phrase is often used as an encouragement for us as we seek to live the whole of our lives in relationship to God. 
his grace and his empowering spirit. That there shouldn't be a part of our lives that we consider sacred, like attending church on a Sunday, and then try and box our sacredness in our lives just into these two hours on a Sunday. And then we have another part of our lives that uh, we consider secular, that we have no reference to God. Man, there shouldn't be a divide between the, those two things. That, that's true, and that's a mentality that should be encouraged for us. We should live the whole of our lives in worship to God. But this wall reminds us that there is a very real divide between what is sacred and what is secular. In that in our sin, we cannot hope to approach God's holiness and live. We either take on ourselves the punishment our sins deserve, or we allow Jesus to take it in our place. This dividing wall highlights our very real need of Jesus. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our holiness is derived from Christ, not inherent in ourselves. We are so wonderfully and thoroughly dependent on him. Where grace received through faith from first to last is the only way that we can stand before God. The door reminds us in similar ways to the wall that there is only one way to approach God. There is only one way in. In John 10 uh, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. When addressing the Jewish leaders at Pentecost, the Apostle Peter taught in Acts 4 verse 12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is only one way into God's presence. There is only one way to experience God's blessing. There is only one way to enter his rest. There is only one way to gain God's eternal life and it's through Jesus. That's the wall, that's the door. Let's get into the courtyard where again we find the altar of burnt offerings. Once a place of continual sacrifice, now it points to Jesus' ultimate and final sacrifice to us upon the cross. Again, check out these verses in Hebrews 10. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when this priest that's our Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Wow. Behind the altar of burnt offerings was the basin where the priest would wash and get clean. Well, Jesus offers us living water. As he says in John 4, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we too are symbolically cleansed through baptism in his name. Into the holy place, the lampstand provided light and represented the light of God's presence. Well, in John 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At the table and the, pres- uh, the bread of the presence represented God's blessing on his people. And we too are blessed by him, that is Jesus, when we come to the table to feast with him. He who said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. It was his broken body that we remember as we eat the bread when we take communion together. We are invited to come and allow him to sustain us. A few verses earlier in John 6, Jesus taught, Very truly I tell you, it is, not Mo- it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes from heaven and gives life to the world. The altar of incense represented the prayers to, uh, the prayers to God as a sweet fragrance. Now, Jesus himself is our mediator with the Father and he is praying on our behalf, our great intercessor. As it says in Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save completely those who have come, uh, come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Finally then into the most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant, this focal point of God's presence, the mercy seat. Can you remember what was in it? We had the golden jar of manna representing God's provision, Aaron's staff that budded representing God's chosen priest, the stone tablets representing God's holiness and the law. Well, Jesus fulfilled every single one of the commands of the law. He delivered us from our sin. He provided for our greatest need. He met the demands for judgment, atonement and mercy needed for the forgiveness of our sins. And he is our great high priest, chosen and anointed by God. I love the way Hebrews 7 puts it. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And again, I can't put this any better than the writer to the Hebrews, you're going to need to read Hebrews, guys, who says in Hebrews 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne of God's grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is our true and better tabernacle. And while this is a beautiful truth for us to bask in, let me take just a little bit of time to directly apply this to our worship, both corporately as we might meet with others, but also individually. Uh, The book of the Exodus isn't the only book that tells us about the Exodus. Indeed, the first five books of the Bible come as a a set. You may have heard people talk about the Pentateuch at the start of the Bible. Well, it simply means five books, the five books that start the Bible. And in Numbers 2, that's one book in the Pentateuch, we read how the Israelite camp was set up any time they stopped anywhere. And again, here's a diagram and an artist's impression of it. Uh, You can see that around the tabernacle at the centre of the camp, there were arrayed the 12 tribes of Israel around it. And the tabernacle was always set up 
right in the middle, right in the centre of the camp. It would have been the focal point of their communal life, the centre of their worship. To come and worship at the tabernacle would have been a deliberate gathering together of God's people near to his presence to praise. As followers of Jesus, this is what we're called to do as well, to deliberately and intentionally prioritise gathering together with other believers to praise and worship our God. This means setting aside time in our diaries. And I'm not sure what time of the week that you'll be watching this service on Everyday Church Online, but I, I trust it's part of a regular rhythm in your life to gather with others, even online, to join us as we praise God together. And these times are important because they help us put Jesus at the centre of our lives, reorientating our lives away from ourselves and onto him. Making Jesus the centre isn't just something that we can do when we're together, but also when we're apart. Now, in recent weeks, I've made a deliberate change to the way that I approach prayer. I recognised that I got into a bad habit in my prayer times. I, uh, th these times of prayer uh, had basically become times of grumbling my petitions to God. Now, now there is a right time to lament. Uh, the Bible itself gives us language to express our disappointments to God. But I noticed that it had become an entrenched habit for me. And I wasn't taking time to declare truth in my times with God. I wasn't taking time to declare truth through song, nor my trust through prayer. But doing so has transformed my intentional times with God as I've deliberately sought to declare truth about him both before and after I grumble. I take time to remember his goodness. I take time to remember his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his sovereignty, his kind and gentle disposition towards his people. Attempting this habit has also helped shape those times when my worries bubble up and threaten to dominate my thinking. Having truth ready to mind enables a stability and a security that I couldn't find in myself, that I can't find in myself. Uh, let me read to you uh, another verse from Hebrews. This time, Hebrews 6:19. We have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Would regular times of worship and prayer enable you to experience this in your life? Jesus is here, with us by his Holy Spirit. He is the true and better tabernacle, the one through whom we can walk into God's presence and find grace and mercy for our time of need. Let us worship him together now.